Hello, everyone. Jason here. I just wanted to share a couple of things before this episode for the racket gets going. Uh, firstly, I wanted to share our thanks to all of you who have listened so far. We are so excited to get this podcast started and share these movies with you. Uh, next up, Lauren and I want to especially thank the folks at Pontifax for listening to our first episodes and giving us some valuable feedback and guidance. Uh, Pontifax is a podcast rating and reviewing all the popes in history. So kind of like us, but with popes. Uh, along those lines, another special thanks to Totalis Rankium for giving us a boost. They are reviewing and ranking all of the U.S. presidents and Roman emperors. Definitely give them a listen. It's great to hear from these veteran podcasters who have been doing this for a while. I've been fans of them from the start, and it's so awesome of them to help us out. Uh, lastly, before we start, I wanted to let everyone know that we can now be found on Facebook. Just search for Come Back a Star, and I think you should find it. If you can't, you can also hit us up on Twitter at Come Back a Star. Or if you're a little old fashioned, of course, you can always email us at Come Back a Star Podcast at gmail.com. And that's it for now. Uh, lights down, projector on. Let's start the show. Let's be coherent indeed. And be engaging. Get everyone mm. interested. Oh, yeah. Actually, this one is probably, I don't know, it's probably one of the higher appeal ones. Yeah, it's crowd friendly. All right, so let's get started. Okay, let's do this. Let's do it. Hello, my name is Jason. I'm Laura. And welcome to Come Back a Star, a movie award heist. It's a mystery. It's a murder. It's a mystery murder, but it's but, not. But really, it's not at all a mystery. Not a mystery. It's a bootleggers edition, guys. All right. Give me one moment. I can't hear myself. I can't hear myself either. It's great. Is there going to be a loud pop in my ears? Should I take them off? Probably not. Nope. Good. Oh, there I am. Nice and nasally. I'll never make it in talkies. <laughs> Better start smoking. Oh, gosh. Was that really a thing? I'm pretty sure it was. It's kind of an unspoken thing. Uh, you know, you got a lot of like very deep voiced actresses at a certain uh, point. And I think a lot of them, if you read, were like, eh, the producers recommended she start smoking to a lower her voice. Oh, really? Mm hmm. Yeah. There are different times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure nothing like that happens now in Hollywood. No, no, they don't. They don't at all like have actors go through the most ridiculous crap to, uh, to no, get them off screen. No, now it's hyper exercise to uh, make sure they look convincing when they uh, fake their stunts in uh, action yeah, movies. That's, it's so weird. I hope we get to a point where you can just have whatever body type you want. And uh, I don't know if it really requires some different one. They can just CGI it. I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure we're all going to be replaced by CGI avatars at a certain point. So... Might as well start with the pretty people on screen. I definitely wouldn't mind a CGI avatar, you know, like doing work for us. Oh, yeah. Well, I remember, you know, in uh, elementary school, uh, they had us debate uh, cloning. Mm -hmm. And 
almost universally, everyone said that the pros to having a clone would be sending them to school in our place. So, yeah, hardwired to uh, it's a fair point. Assert dominance over uh, over clones over clones. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What movie are we covering today, Jason? Yes. Oh, yeah, that's right. We're doing a movie podcast. Are we? I was just, I was just BSing here. I don't know. Yeah, I, I thought that we could just kind of uh, verbally putter around for a while. I fear uh, that's what people like. They like the banter. So, you know, we've got to convince them we're human. Yeah, it's kind of weird because I don't, I, I see you so often since you live in the same house. Yeah, we that, basically just communicate in grunts and whistles at this point. So. Yeah, it's like I already know what you've done today because I was there. Yeah, I got up and I, <laughs> and I ate some leftover brownies that I went back to bed for a while. Hey, it's a solid it's a solid way to start a Saturday morning. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, yeah, we are watching today and reviewing The Racket, which is uh, a nominee for the 19... Oh, gosh, I'm now blanking out on the year. 20, 27, 28. Yeah. It's weird because the first few Academy Awards were not sh- strictly one year. They kind of spanned two yeah. years. So it's, it's kind of weird uh, right at the start. You know, first Oscars ceremony, they, they were making it up as they were going along. Why not? Yeah, I, exactly. Exactly. Um, so the racket is a crime drama that follows the exploits of crime boss Nick Scarcy. And his uh, counterpoint is police chief McQuig, who uh, they're kind of opposites. They're kind of uh, sort of funhouse mirror reflections of each other. And it's, I guess what you'd say the principal dynamic in the movie um, is between, you know, upholder of the law and upholder of crime squaring off. Yeah, it is. And um, we we actually uh, attempted to record this episode before. Yeah. And due to allergy reasons, we couldn't finish. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Both of us got got kind of sick. We're delicate souls. So but I'm kind of glad that that did happen because between that recording and now we've experienced a quite a well there, there's a shift in attitudes towards police yep or it, shift or at least vocalization thereof I mean I think a lot of it has to do with quarantine I think before white people had the luxury of well I'd look into this more but I have other stuff going on. Yeah, I can see that and being a contributing factor. And now it's factor. kind of like, okay, I guess I'll read into this a little more. Oh, oh, oh. So mm-hmm. a lot of fellow whites out there, I think, are kind of waking up. That could be just blindly optimistic of me, but there is talk and discussion about definitely... The role of police. And, and the possibility to completely change up that structure, which I am all for. And I'm not afraid to say it because I am here in the <laughs> basement and uh, no one can come to get me in my fortress. That's true. We have an impenetrable basement. It's yep. the clutter alone will, will protect us. But it was kind of interesting that all of that started happening. And this movie itself... And maybe I'm reading into it a little bit much, but 
it does seem to portray the police and crime as almost part of the same coin. Oh, yeah. I don't think you're reading into that at all. I think that's that that's pretty explicit. And um, it's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting that this movie from 1927, which um, I mean, it's everyone in the movie is white and everything like that. So it's not touching on the racial issues, but the police are not really good in this either. Yeah. It's interesting. It's like the more things change, the more they stay the same. Obviously we don't have prohibition right now. And the plot really kind of hinges on prohibition and bootlegging, but the system kind of protecting the bootleggers and the system kind of trying to, both uphold this nonsensical law, yet at the same time feeding right into the corruption of uh, the criminals is still something we're very much seeing today. Yeah, yes. And (laughs) there's all sorts of parallels that we can kind of apply to our times in this movie. It's it's, uh, like you said, there's government corruption, government support of crime. It's almost like you could claim that it's a kind of commentary on how white collar crime is protected mm-hmm. the uh the head goon that we're that we're focusing on as kind of representation of crime is obviously wealthy he yep. he he looks like he's been hit by a truck in the face which actually is a fantastic look for the role yeah that guy's louis uh oh gosh Louis Wilhelm, I want to say, is uh, how you say his name. Sounds about right. Um, he's he's perfectly cast. Yeah, he's got that like kind of shovel, rough, rustic face. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, he's always, you know, dressed immaculately, groomed immaculately. And uh, yes. yeah, Louis Wolheim, Louis Wolheim. And uh, so it's like this nice kind of contrast that, you know, I'm sure has so a lot of problematic elements in that you know you could tell even though he dresses to the nights he hobnobs with the the upper crust of society Mm -hmm. uh you look at that face and that's a criminal face very kind of coded i think as like yeah you know what was what was the actor's backstory um was he like a (laughs) boxer or something like that um he yeah i think he was like an amateur boxer he had uh like gotten his nose broken and set by a doctor and then he went out and gotten like a bar fight and got it even more effed up so really it's it's, it's perfect casting Yeah, it's yeah. a distinctive he, look. I think, unfortunately, I think he died relatively young, not too much longer after this came out, maybe oh. five or 10 years. So I which is a shame because I really think he would have become just a very uh, well-loved character actor if he'd been able to get into talkies. Yeah, he uh, he did a fantastic job mm-hmm. with this. Um, I think he just part of it was that he just has the look, but he he projected smug self-assured criminal very well oh yeah yeah and just kind of like his character is in a way a so like kind of has a, a social climber and you get the sense it's not just to protect his business which is bootlegging but also i think for his own vanity and i think yeah. that's what really gets in his craw when you know his counterpart uh McQuig doesn't fall for it doesn't want to like hobnob with him i think it's it's you know, half to do with the fact, oh, great, this guy is going to look into me. He's going to try to take me down. And half of it is 
screw this guy. Does he think he's better than me? Yeah. Yeah. There's a little bit of that. And there's also a little bit of the police not really being much better than them. Uh, no. But uh, I guess we'll, you want to just kind of start getting into the summary of the plot? Yeah, I mean, it's so tough because there are so many different elements kind of going on and there's mm-hmm. always so much action. Like, I think this and I plan to go into this in a little more detail later on. I feel like this would have benefited from being a talkie because uh, apparently yeah. this started out as a play. And it and I, it's the kind of movie you would expect to see in like five years when, you know, gangster movies with uh, Jimmy Cagney, Edward G. Robinson mm-hmm. became more popular you get the sense it probably would have made more sense to have it be like a very kind of snappy dialogue. And so it's a little difficult sometimes to keep up with the plot. It's impressive though, that, uh, that it does kind of fit that more modern, well, more modern. We're talking about the thirties. Uh, <laughs> All relativity. It, yeah. It, it does kind of fit those early talkies, even this, despite it being a silent era film. I don't know if it was the only gangster movie that, you know, really defined a lot of these tropes, but it did feel you could you could see the line being drawn from the racket to the Godfather or mm-hmm. just later gangster movies right off the bat. It was the racket is maybe a little bit more I wouldn't call it like just simple, but just more straightforward. Yeah, not a lot of fuss. It doesn't have Sunrise's kind of like artistic ambition at all. Right. It's just it wants to like it's a show doesn't tell you type. There's a lot you have to infer that I think there's probably a lot we didn't pick up on as a modern audience that I think Mm -hmm. a late 20s audience would have. And it doesn't take the time to explain all that to you. It's basically keep up or get out kind of kind of feel (laughs) (laughs) and that's almost part of i would say that's almost part of the appeal because they use a lot of slang and things like that that maybe people in the 20s knew or i kind of get the feeling that some of the more slang type terms were maybe not super commonly known at least not everywhere in the u.s but it's accessible and you you know what's going on as you're watching it, at least. So it, it feels very accessible. Yes. Yes. Where, whereas like some of the some of the movies that we have already reviewed or will review in this in this year will. Uh, we're not always super accessible. No, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll give it that. It's it's a fun movie. That's the thing. I liked it. Specifically. Because it was, it just felt easy. <laughs> it felt easy. It's which is not, which straight, is not easy to do sometimes. It's straightforward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically the movie starts kind of establishing on an ironic note. It has these doors to the factory that Nick Scarzi runs that, you know, celebrates Nick Scarzi, friend of the Prohibition League. And then, oh, right. has, and then dissolves to see all the barrels of bootleg beer that they're piling on the trucks. I love that scene in that there's a lot of really good crowd scenes. Yes. In this movie, which are not not simple to do. Uh, but the the bootlegging operation scene is 
really dynamic that shows them rolling barrels down this ramp to the trucks. It's just, it's a really good dynamic scene. And it also, this is another way that it's kind of similar to the more modern movies in that I wouldn't be surprised if it's the first time that we kind of see a montage of a heist taking could place. Could be, could be. Because you see them, you know, loading into trucks and then you see them hopping in with the guns and then you see them driving off. And it's all it all feels like a almost like a military operation because you have someone there just with a clipboard making sure they're keeping time and everything like that. But actually, before we jump too far ahead, and I feel like this this happened the last time that we recovered that we <laughs> that we try to review this movie is that you we talk about some some scene and then we have to re, you know press rewind a little bit to cover something that that we forgot because there's a lot of little details going on at the same time mm-hmm. but one of the things that i noticed and this kind of this is one way in which i think that they're presenting the police and crime as part of two sides of the same coin the way that we're introduced to mcquig's name we we see him in this very first scene where uh some goons shoot at him and Nick Scarcy just kind of tells him to be careful and then invites him to his little brother's birthday party, which is kind of odd. Mm-hmm. But we're like, oh, huh, who's that? Who's that cop guy that's being threatened by uh, by this mob boss? And then the scene cuts to McQuig's name being written on his gun holster. Yes. And right. then that cuts to mobsters carrying guns and jumping onto a truck so in some ways we go from gun to different gun and yeah kind of pay you know sort of silently asks the question of what really is the difference here right and it also just highlights the uh criticism of prohibition which oh yeah of course they would have to be careful about at this time because it was still going on yeah it was still deeply entrenched and everything and you know if you're an upright citizen you're part of the the anti-liquor league and everything like that yep. as, as we see established by scarcy being part of that league despite being a bootlegger but it was it was such a violent time that was created by by prohibition and i'd also like to point out it was kind of amusing because what they were bootlegging was not even the hard stuff. It was just beer. Yes. Which is like, which I do wonder if, if they chose something pretty benign, like beer specifically to, to show how ridiculous it all was. Yeah, that could be. I mean, possibly. Cause I mean, we had people, there are people dying over this. Uh, what happens is, Scarcy decides to transport his bootleg liquor through a part of town that is controlled by another crime boss. Do you you remember his name? Oh, boy. I was it Maxwell or something. No, it was. No, it was it was something like one word. It was like shark or snippy or something like that. Snippy. Spike. Spike. Yes, that's it. They decided to go through Spike's territory. And that starts a gang fight, I believe, between the the two gangs in the street in which the uh, the police then also get involved and they're also shooting at people. And it's another great crowd scene because it's not just the mobsters. It's also just all these 
ordinary people on the street. Yeah. And one of the most hilarious things is that after kind of the gun smoke clears and everything like that, you see these ordinary people running up and grabbing the barrels of booze that were left on the ground and running off with them. I mean, I really it's funny because I really think modern audiences would probably take to this movie because it's it really more than any of the others we've covered kind of captures what we think of now as the roaring 20s of Chicago Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of that kind of fun sort of depiction of uh, gangster corruption. Right. Oh, and speaking of corruption, all of these bootlegging uh, trucks have giant uh, political advertisements on their sides. So which to me seems risky. But again, I think they're just hammering the corruption of it. And it, you know, a little bit risky to be driving a truck filled with illegal goods and like vote for so-and-so for mayor, because that's probably not great for that candidate. No, probably most candidates realistically wouldn't love that. But at the same time, I, I forget you know. the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, exactly. that's, that's clever. I think it's, yeah, there are a lot of good subtle touches in this movie for something that you don't think back on as being a particularly subtle movie. There are touches throughout that when you think back on, I'm like, yeah, that was clever. Yeah, it it really does. And that surprised me. Uh, I when I was first reading about it before we even watched it, I thought like, oh, OK, a gangster movie from the 20s. It's 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 fine. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then we actually watch it and I said, like, this is a really engaging, like, you know, basic, but it's a really engaging movie in a ways and also had like little touches in ways that I was not expecting from just like a gangster movie. Exactly. And again, I think it would have benefited from sound and getting us closer to the individual characters, but I think everyone was really well cast Mm -hmm. that, uh, that was easily surmountable and you could still get a flavor for who they are. Right. Right. So yep, we've got, uh, the shootout between the two rival gangs and McQuig, our token good cop, uh, is uh, is he though? We'll, we'll yeah, get into well, it. well, he's a, he's an interesting character, and again, I want to laud the movie for not making everything black and white, good or bad. Mm-hmm. But you know, he's definitely got the whole thing is stuck up in his craw. He does not like Scarzy. He wants to take him down. And uh, but does show up to that birthday party where, yeah, some stuff happens. He shows up to the birthday party, but only after arresting. I found it weird that he arrests one person that he sees shoot another person dead. So it's it's murder. But everyone is shooting at everybody else, it seems like in that chaotic scene. Yeah, could be he's like trying to like suss out just like a weak link kind of uh Maybe. No, yeah, nobody who might be more easily inclined to squeal than if uh, maybe caught like one of the big enforcers. I'm not sure. He uh, he arrests a mobster that is dressed particularly dandy like and is also played by Paul Rubens. It's funny how many dandified criminals are are in this. And if dandified could be just sort of a code for, you know, homosexual. <laughs> uh, because I think it's you know could be the homophobia of the time that like look how corrupt they are they're all so gay but yeah 
I, I do think that it definitely there is a danger, like you said earlier, to read it too much into that, too. Yeah, maybe a little bit. Uh, the person he arrests is named Chick and he is. I don't know, I I'm pretty sure he's coded as gay, but uh, he also looks a lot like Paul Rubens. So he could also, he, yeah, just be a TV host of a surreal kids show. So, yeah. I don't want to harp on to it too much, but seriously, look up, um, I think, what's his name? Lucien Prival. Yes, Lucien Prival. Look him up. He he looks like if Paul Ruins and Peter Laurie had a child. And kind of stretched him out a little. And then, yeah, and then stretched him out a little. Yeah. He's dressed immaculately, too. That's the other reason why I think he might be coded as gay, is that he he has, like, a very fine suit. He is dressed perfectly. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so he's the person that McQuig decides to take in and I guess pin the entire operation on, which to be fair, you earlier see it. It's that it's chick who's kind of organizing everyone in that montage scene that I mentioned. But there's no way McQuig would know that. But uh, yeah, he's the one who's brought in and very quickly, basically, as soon as McQuig leaves the building the police precinct to go to the birthday party uh presumably to kind of see if what he can get out of uh scarcy as soon as he's gone a chick is let out on bail because of scarcy's connections or he's either let out on bail or he has uh, a writ of habeas which i'm not a lawyer i don't know how that works exactly Oh, i have no idea basically it seems like on a couple of times in this movie, someone just shows up and says like, hey, you got nothing on, on this guy. You have to let him go. Yep. Yep. And I think, you know, that slowly does change McQuig from, you know, the black and white good guy to someone who just it just kind of gets at him and gets at him and just kind of mm-hmm. hardens him in a way. So he's kind of ready for a fight. Yeah, he's kind of spoiling for it. And mm-hmm. let's talk about the birthday party because the birthday party is is fun. It's fun. McQuig, get into it. Um, yeah, we meet Scarzy's little brother, who is basically in every way seems to be opposite of his big brother. And uh, again, you don't know with Scar with Nick Scarzy how much of his protectiveness of his brother is down to like genuine brotherly affection or again, vanity. Like, you know, you get the impression that, you know, Scarcy probably comes from a poor background and he has built up this empire. And now his little brother has to be like a gentleman. He has to, he has to be, uh, he doesn't really want him to be part of the, of the business. Yeah, and he's and his little brother is the one going to college. Yeah, um, his rat faced brother. Yeah, the brother is also such a character. The most weaselly, greasy little mustache you ever did see on a character. Oh gosh, and just it, it's oozes just, a creep. Yes, it it's cast so well, so well. Such and, a and that. I mean, I feel bad for the you know poor actor. Probably not <laughs> even alive anymore, but. I mean, he just, he looks like the most spoiled, creepy, rat-looking guy there is. Yeah, and I'm sure there's, like, all sorts of stuff to be written about 
just why he was portrayed that way. That again, as a more modern audience, we might not really be able to fully understand, Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, he seems to be just kind of a rich creep who uh, college boy, college boy who wants to kind of, kind of like a, like a frat boy, basically who Mm -hmm. had, because he's gotten all this privilege and all these expectations set on him is spoiled and just wants to, reap the benefits of his brother's lifestyle. Yeah, he is definitely one of those people who's not used to not getting what they want. Mm-hmm. This is also when we first meet him, they're getting ready for the birthday party. And gosh, I don't want to keep harping on this, but I think Nick Scarcy might be coded as gay as well. <laughs> because that's when it comes up where his brother's like, hey, is there going to be any dames there? And uh, Nick Scarcy is like, no, women are poison to me. I hate them, which is like a very, a very, at that time, what the prejudice view of gay men was is that they hate women and that's why they're gay. Uh- <laughs> could be, could be. I mean, there's a lot at play and there was kind of, I think, an undercurrent that I think you definitely saw like at the same time in Weimar, Germany of, you know, Corruption is corruption. Everyone, you know, once you go fall into that lifestyle, anything's possible. You could have started out as a good, good old straight boy. Yeah. But then, you know, once you get to that lifestyle and you figure out anything's possible, oh, look what happens. And then that kind yeah. of narrow viewpoint leads to some pretty terrible stuff down the line. Because, I mean, there is there is a divide drawn between uh, the little brother, who's not a good person either, but it's he's respectable at least in comparison to Nick and he's almost like hyper heterosexual. It could be just him being a young man who's used to getting whatever he wants, or it could be just like written in a specific contrast to, uh, to Nick who fills the, the other trope, which I don't know. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's kind of a, like, if you're corrupt, then you're corrupt all the way. And that includes homophobically enough. Yeah. Uh, just just not just not liking girls romantically. Right. OK, so moving on from uh, Catcher's Mitt Face and Rat Face. To the party itself. To the party itself. I love the party scene. The party scene really kind of sets a unique tone. Uh, there's like different set places throughout the movie. And I, again, I think it might have to do with the fact this started out as a play um, where and the action seems to just kind of settle at the party for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, I didn't notice it until you mentioned it. Uh, so they at least disguise it a little bit, at least enough to, you know, dupe me, but there are set changes. Yeah. And in your right, it's like they have a scene, it stops, and then you go on to another scene that's also kind of static. Yep. Um, not a hundred percent so. It's not it's not like Hitchcock's rope or anything like that. No. It's just Yeah, we, we get to spend some time at the party scene, which is a group it's a it's a crowd scene, so it was well done considering that you have a, a single set to work with. But uh, as we're entering in we see something that I must have just been a thing in the twenties, but it looked like a live action punch and Judy. 
Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. It, it was bizarre looking. And again, kind of gave me sort of the cabaret vibes of kind of what was yeah. going on in Weimar Germany at the time of that very kind of like freedom and artistic expression and the kind of maybe a commentary on the how a lot of the entertainment in these circles was brought in from like immigrants. Yeah, I was wondering because it uh, let me explain what the Punch and Judy thing was is uh these people were wearing masks and they looked like eastern european peasants and and how they were costumed and apparently they were supposed to break into some dance number which gets cut short but it it was it was just very odd looking and almost grotesque in a in a just plain artistic bizarre way uh anyway so that's that's our introduction to the party was was this weird thing going on maybe back then it wasn't so weird maybe maybe back then like every other birthday party had live action punch and judy antics but man those masks were creepy they were they will haunt my nightmares for years to come but under one of those masks is yes. the movie's mvp mvp for sure the heroine the heroine helen Right. That's her name. Right? Yeah, it is Helen. By uh, the one name played by the one name I actually recognized uh, in this movie, uh, Marie Prevost, who I th- I think was uh, in some Chaplin movies before this. And she was, I think, unfortunately, one of those actresses whose career faded a bit once talkie started. But she's great. Helen's great. And is the true hero of the movie. Yeah, she really, really is. And just a marvelously written female character for the time, especially following in the footsteps of like a movie like Sunrise, mm-hmm. where the female characters were very like Madonna horror. Well, she right. was she was neither. She was. I mean, she's out for herself, definitely. Right. But she's not heartless. Far yeah, from that. she's she has a personality and her personality is like she's an actual character. I mean, I think she and uh, Clara Bow in Wings are just the first contemporary female characters we get in this group of Oscar nominated movies. Um, And I think I think she's just such a great character because she's very human Mm -hmm. and uh, very imperfect and just so lovable. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard you have a hard time not loving this character she at she's at the party she's a dancer and singer and actually she is judy in the weird punch and judy sketch and the manager asks like hey why'd you cut the play short and she's like oh well you know nick scarcy and his baby brother are here i'm gonna go you know uh mess around with them and see what i can get out of them because they're very wealthy yeah i mean she's just upfront about it and she's also i think you know just like yeah this is how these things are done you uh you know that's why they hire me they want me to go and be you know sultry and sexy at Mm -hmm. the uh at the uh, little baby boy of honor and uh but she doesn't know i guess until uh, it happens that nick he's got a problem with dames especially one who makes uh, goo goo eyes at precious baby brother such a weird dynamic Uh, it really really is uh yeah so she shows up um on a rolling upright piano (laughs) with her big mushroomy blonde hair and just like very sleeky she's just great yeah so she she's singing seductively while uh while 
baby brother is is uh lapping it up just just lapping it up and also taking some swigs from a flask and everything like that and eventually what nick does is he just kicks the uh, rolling piano away which is pretty comedic to begin with and what's awesome is that she doesn't take this lying down and she she gets into this very dangerous mobster's face and her you know her line is you uh you may be Maybe able to get away with murder, but you you can't get away with treating me like that. Yeah, which is, I mean, perfect. She calls him out and just in a very straightforward, like realistic way, if like if if someone were actually angry and you I mean, I guess it's kind of sexist in that, like, we're supposed to be taken aback by this this woman standing up for herself. But. But, you know, to the credit, it's, ref- it's, it's, it's refreshing. Know, it's refreshing. And I think it's, you know, supposed to get us on her side. Like, yeah, you stand up to that freaking bully. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's pretty great. And and, and just also, you know, the, the flip side to her character, you know, he accuses her of like, oh, you're just a gold digger like the rest of them. And then when she's, you know, someone's trying to cool her down, like, hey, let's let's get she's like, oh, he thinks I'm a gold digger, huh? Well, I'm go- I'll go do it. I'm going to dig deep. And, yeah, uh, it's, then, so, it's a great line. And so she like just kind of is like, you know, for revenge, sets her eyes on like twisty little brother around her finger. And it's like, yeah, she she delightful. And this might be I don't know why I like this bit so much. She starts a she starts a singing number and uh, they're in a speakeasy. And it's before the era of microphones, I guess. She's singing into like one of those cones that you see a uh, like cheerleaders use. Yeah, like the megaphone. Right. And uh, so that's what she's singing through to get her voice heard in this crowd. And it's also we get to see what I looked up is called a strobe violin. That's right. Oh, the strobe violin, you goofy monstrosity. It's it's a violin with a like trumpet attachment so it could be heard in these like big band setups that were happening in in speakeasies, I guess. Half violin, half trumpet, all glorious. It's I I loved it. I loved this like very weird uh, snapshot of of uh, what the era was like. Yeah, I mean, just because it's you're not going to really get touches like that in a movie like chicago or something that is done by us today and what we think is uh like authentic kind of 20s vibes because i think a lot of people kind of conflate 20s with 30s and all of that right so right. like you know microphones weren't commonplace and uh that so they it, it was, it's just it was such a great authentic look into what one of those mm-hmm. you know typical great gatsby uh 20s parties really looked like yeah i really like it uh, so we're enjoying we're enjoying this party. And I think that's when um, Officer McQuig shows up. And there's a nice little moment where he sees his name on uh, on a little like a place setting, like right, right. by Nick Scarzi. And I think that more than anything just really enrages him that like, here you are, you sit here. It's basically signing the devil's contract. Right. Being right. like publicly seeing his name next to Nick Scarzi's. Right, sitting down right. would mean it would mean like he's shaking hands with with Satan, basically. Yeah. And there's also just kind of this presumption that Nick loves to kind of lord over this this copper. Uh, 
And I think at an earlier point, someone even says like, hey, McQuig is going to be looking out for you, you driving liquor through this other person's territory, to which uh, Scarcy replies, oh, don't you worry about that copper. I'll take care of him. So there's this kind of Nick is whining and dining McQuig. And I think, yeah, every assumption Nick makes just serves to enrage McQuig all the more. Right. And also, there is also a close up of not only uh, McQuig's place setting, but also the place setting for Chick, the man who's been accused of uh, murder that McQuig just uh, arrested. And McQuig's like, well, I don't think he's going to be showing up tonight. And of course, as soon as he says that, Chick shows up because he's been already let out. Again, just another little thing to wound McQuig's pride. And I think that's why the central relationship really is between McQuig and Scarzi, because they're both very proud men who do not take kindly to hits to their pride. Kind of that fragile masculinity again. It can be at both both sides of the law. Yeah, there's a lot of ways in in which the two are not different. They're both, you know. Ready. That's so different, you and I. Yeah, but they re- they really, really aren't. Uh, they're both quick to go for their guns. They uh, don't. I mean, we'll get into it later, but they don't really follow the law. No, yeah. It's like even someone who isn't, who is against the corruption in the police force. It's another example of how the law itself is really unimportant to these people. It's about what is personally important to them. For McQuig, it's not really about upholding the law by the book. It's about getting this guy who thinks he's so much better than him. Just like with Scarzi, mm-hmm. he hates McQuig because McQuig thinks he's so much better than him. It's like the snake eats the tail and neither right, of them right. are doing what they're doing for the right reasons. <laughs> Scarcy is not being a criminal for the right no, reasons. <laughs> he's not doing it to give people uh, the beer that the they beer want. That they, he's not being like a bootlegging Robin Hood. He doesn't care about that. He just cares about the status. Yeah, there's a lot of male posturing in this movie. Yes. And it's, I think it's almost a I think it's almost a movie about male posturing Absolutely. in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Because we were just talking about Helen. She seems to do the male posturing thing, but in a good way, in service of just standing up for herself. She's been around, and I think she just has sees right through all the men in the movie. Mm-hmm. She sees through all of them, including McQuig. And, and so she's just like, yeah, neither of these people are really, truly in the right. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I got to do what I got to do. Yeah. Yeah. So so they're at the party. McQuig sees Chick roll in, and uh, along with Chick, all not shortly thereafter rolls in. Uh, gosh, what is his name again? Snark. Spike. Spike. Uh, snark. Snark. Uh, Spike rolls in with his goons, and they kind of clear out the place a little bit. They take over people's tables and things like that. So Nick is surrounded, and. After a while, after kind of a stare off, Nick quick draws on Spike, shoots him dead and hands off the gun to someone right behind him very quickly so he can't get pinned. This happens while the police are in the room as well. They try to arrest Nick Scarcy, but there's no weapon. And also you see in the background Scarcy's lawyer, I think it is. 
uh, kind of put like just kind of show him this envelope that he's already carrying. And you later see this envelope being pushed forward as another writ of habeas uh, to let Nick Scarcy out, implying that they already had the get out of jail free card ready before there was even before he was even arrested. Oh, yeah. Nick wanted this to go down. I think the way it went down. Absolutely. And it was this was in a weird way, kind of his way to try to extend an evil sort of olive branch to McQuig. Like, hey, you're here. Uh, you're going to be in on this with me. Right. And smooth this out for me. This is a test for you. If you do great, you can stay in your position. If not, I'm going to get rid of you. Right. And since McQuig uh, challenges him on this. He gets sent off to the sticks. He gets, basically. yeah. So we find out that, like, yeah, Scarcy's power runs deep in the department. And uh, McQuig's right now is the is the loser. He He's the one who has to go into the sticks. And uh, this kind of opens up a chapter into. So, you know, we've had we've had the bootleggers. We've had the cops. We've seen like the lawyer and some of the politicians, but now our next big group of characters that were, you know, typical of this time, the journalists who were a lot yes. more, who are probably the funnest group of the bunch as portrayed in this movie. Again, lots of like his girl Friday kind of yeah, vibes about yeah. them all. And they're the, the reporters, there's two main reporters, uh, Pratt and what's his other name? Uh, Miller, I think, is the name. There are three. There are three reporters, but we're first introduced to Miller and Pratt. Right, and um, <clears throat> there are two main ones to start with who we kind of see. Uh, Pratt, as you mentioned earlier, and Miller, played by uh, Richard Skeets Gallagher, <laughs> which I just love, and he's great. He just has this presence about him, like he's you know you see him, he's taking a nap kind of in one of the seats, and he's just got this very kind of just sort of casual air about him that's just mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. super likable and uh and kind of sets the tone for like for these journalists, these reporters yeah, the the journalists are little little agents of mayhem really. yeah i mean this this is probably the high to yellow journalism in the twenties of you know always wanting to kind of uh up the ante for a good story, yo. Yeah, they they kind of stoke the fires a little bit by, first of all, uh, telling McQuig that you know they heard that he's hiding out from uh, from Nick Scarcy because he's afraid of him, and that's why he's all the way out in the sticks. And McQuig falls for it immediately and says, like, no, 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 I'm not hiding from him. He's fighting from me because he's afraid of me. And again, it's it's male posturing the movie. And it's it's almost like some way you'd get you trick a child into yes. doing something. That's exactly what I was thinking. Uh, it, it's, it's comical. It's comical how how childlike they are and until you realize that they have guns. But <laughs> uh, does it change the fact they're childlike? Just gives it a whole dangerous edge. <laughs> So after they've gotten uh, McQuig all riled up and got him to say, oh, yeah, he's afraid of me, they go off to Spike's funeral, which is being attended, ironically enough, by Nick Scarcy and his gang. So you have the head of one gang and, you know, his his old goons are there mourning the loss of their boss. 
And then you have the gang that actually murdered him also like uh, sitting across from, from each, each other. other. Right. And, and yeah. as one of the reporters, uh, uh, I think he says uh, first he plugs them, then he plants them. So you see this, you know, very respectable Nick Scarcy uh, wearing a, a suit and paying his respects to the person he just murdered. And as you mentioned, I, I don't know. I feel like whenever we talk about this movie, I always love bringing it up. But the two mobs are uh, sitting across from each other. And there's this great little bit where, first of all, Nick, while he's watching this, is grinning because he's loving it because they all have their hats on their laps. And you see, because of like double exposure type thing, that they're all holding guns under their hats pointed at each other. Yep. And Nick just grins at this. He He's loving it. Again, kind of like a child would. Just yeah. Very immature people in positions of power. <laughs> it's what's, funny. What's, what's that like? I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah. So these two reporters, the little, uh, little uh, mayhem monsters show yep. up and very loudly whisper that, oh, McQuig says that. Nick Scarcy is afraid of him, and that's why he sent him away to the sticks. And like like a child, um, of course, Nick Scarcy overhears this and says, "Like, hey, I'm not afraid of him. He's afraid of me. I'll show him. Just wait until uh, after this election that I'm backing is over, and then I'll get rid of him permanently." You know, so again, the journalists are just kind of the puppet masters here because it's just so easy to pull these particular strings. Right. Oh, but we can't go on without mentioning that at this funeral, it is interrupted by the arrival on the street of a pipe organ. That's right. A parade, right? I don't think it's a parade. I think it's just like a pipe organ guy on a truck that I'm assuming is playing for donations or money or something right. like that. Another thing that I noticed while rewatching it that I didn't notice before was that both gangs start like tapping their toes to this organ music that's going on outside. And they're kind of like bobbing back and forth like they're dancing to it in their seats. (laughs) And this infuriates Nick and says, like, you know, go out there and tell him to move on. I gotta show like a little bit of respect, for goodness sakes. And I'm not sure if it's because he is, you know, feels himself too dignified to to let this pipe organ in the street distract from a funeral. Or another interpretation is that he's upset that now everybody is in a good mood and that the mobsters are just kind of like tapping their toes together. I mean, it could be just he wants like hyper vigilance in this very tense situation. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. again, it could be for appearance's sake of him wanting this proper dignified funeral. Or maybe it's a strange look into one sort of decent spot in him that's like, hey, this is a guy's funeral. Sure, I, I'm i the reason there's the funeral because I killed mm-hmm. him. But come on, let's be a little respectful. And yeah. it could be all of it. Yeah, it could be again, multiple it, things. It's a, it's a good example of the movie not spelling it out for us. Yeah. So there's several different interpretations that you can pull from it. It's, um, it's well done. I think from there where we get our third really and final set piece for the rest of the movie, which is in the sticks, which I'm not sure what that means. Does that just mean like a kind of just a poor suburb of Chicago? Cause it's supposed to basically be, be Chicago, Chicago, right? Uh, I don't think they ever 
come out and say it. <laughs> I think but. it's just supposed to be out in the suburbs. Yeah. And, um, oh, that reminds me too. Um, again, I'm doing one of those little quickly, oh, let's quickly rewind uh, things. But you also get to see that McQuig is, there's an example of McQuig not really being that much of a stickler for the law because when you first see those two bored reporters in the police station, uh, one of them just throws a liquor bottle outside of the window of the police station. And later you see McQuig as he enters in is kind of like, Hey guys, what's this empty bottle? Don't litter is basically the, the gist that you get of it. So it's so like, so here's this person who's probably what looks like a liquor instead of just beer, but you know, it's just tossing out a liquor bottle outside of a police station and McQuig doesn't seem to care all that much. And it makes you wonder then, like, what are his motivations? Is it because, is he a reasonable man who realizes that the law itself is stupid, but what he's concerned with is staunching the violence that it inspires? Mm -hmm. Or does he just really hate Scarcity? Yeah. And like, like, it's hard to read his character. And I feel like, you know... I guess spoilers as it goes along, you do start to feel like it's scarcy that he just right. really has. That's his white whale. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right. But yeah, yeah. we are in the sticks where we find, you know, and I think kind of similar to sunrise and, you know, Oh, that corrupt city. It's not as good as, you know, small town values. We get some cop characters who seem like for the setting, Mm-hmm. decent more decent than what <laughs> McQuig has you know had as basically co-workers in the city who didn't right. care at all about stopping Scarzi. yeah I mean to a certain extent uh yeah the next the next scene that we start off with I believe is uh Helen taking a ride with uh I, I keep calling him rat boy but what's his actual character name Joe yeah with little Joe Scarzi. so she's She's doing her business great. She said she was going to go after him and she's gone after him and she has snazzy diamond on her finger from him. So, I mean, right. although she is a little bit, she does create distance between them. Yeah, because he clear, starts getting a little bit clingy. Yeah, like it's clear she's like, oh, this might mean I don't actually want to go through with this. I just wanted to like say F you to Nick Scarzi, but uh, I don't want to actually marry this dude, even for his money. Right. So Joe tries to get fresh with her and, and puts uh, puts a little rat arm around her at one point. And to which she responds by kind of like jabbing at his hand with her lit cigarette, which <laughs> I love. It's great. <laughs> Like, she's just no Fs given. She, I mean, it's really, yeah, the whole, you know, implication here is he only put a ring on it because he wants to have sex with her. Yeah. And she's not going to let that happen without a ring. But now that she has the ring, he figures, oh, well, that means we get to do it. She's like, oh, no, 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 we got to take this all the way. Yeah, yeah. You got to, you got to she... walk me down the aisle. And I mean, I think it's, you know, he's he's young and impressionable, but I don't think he particularly wants to actually marry Helen either. No. So, yeah, she she stops him from getting fresh with her by by jabbing her with jabbing her cigarette. cigarettes and jabbing him with her words. 
That's true, too. She's just very insulting. And but knows it's like, whatever. He doesn't have feelings to hurt. Yeah. Yeah. So she uh, his pride is hurt. Yeah. And again, it's all the pride. Yeah. Yeah. It's essentially just pride. And so she leaves the car. No, no. He he kicks her out of the car. And uh, to which she responds before she leaves, she flicks her cigarette at him, which is, again, awesome. It's a very quick little little tidbit that you that I missed the first couple of times where she just she really uses her her cigarette as a weapon. I know it's like, you know, the woman's weapon at this time. <laughs> Jabbing your cigarette out on people and hey, flicking, flicking them works. at their chests. Yeah. So as she gets kicked out of the car a police car drives up and says like hey is this uh is that rat face guy kicking you out of his car and gonna leave you here well i'll take care of him is basically the response which uh, kicking someone out of your car i'm pretty sure is not illegal yeah it's interesting commentary again of like how it's supposed to be like these small town cops have better values you don't kick a lady out of a car but the reality of it is this cop abusing his power to chase after this guy for not actually yeah. doing anything illegal it's, for being a jerk, but not doing anything actually illegal. Yeah. It's, it's more male posturing too. Yeah, it's just kind of like, posturing. I'm going to be the gallant knight. Like that, she's not asking him to do that. Like she kind of flags down the cop car, I think, so she could get a ride, but she's like, and it's just kind of like, wait, well, but he like leaves her there to like go after <laughs> this guy. Yeah. Yes. Rat boy takes off because he feels threatened by this cop, which I mean, understandably understandable. so. Like, and um, as he as he zips off, the cop car zips off after him, leaving Helen just like what just there. <laughs> and Ratboy hits a woman before getting apprehended. And that was the other thing that I noticed about this uh, officer chasing him. I don't know how conscious this choice was, but you see, you see Joe Scarcy crash. The police officer takes him in and then you see a scene cut to all of these citizens crowding around the woman who's been hurt and an ambulance is coming up. But the but the police officer is nowhere to be seen. So this person is on the ground. We later learn dying. And this officer is more concerned with chasing down the person who who zipped off because and again, who zipped off because this cop was chasing after him for no true reason. Right. <laughs> and so, and again, yeah, you're right. It's hard to tell how conscious of a decision, like where was the director making some kind of commentary or not? I mean, and it's like, it's cool that the movie doesn't spell things out, but it does make you wonder mm-hmm, like really mm-hmm. what the stance is on this. So, but then it cuts back to uh, the jailhouse. And again, some real questionable police tactics are seen in trying to get information because they don't know he's Joe Scarzi. Like McQuig doesn't oh, know. That's right. That's right. Yeah. McQuig doesn't know that it's Nick's little brother brought in because he doesn't give his real name. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got enough smarts for that. And I think Helen gets put in a holding cell, too. Yeah. Yeah. They take her and they say, like, oh, we'll make her talk. And they just like put her in a holding cell, which I don't think you can do no. legally. So, really, like this whole upstanding little place in the sticks is a nightmare place. <laughs> it, it's a nightmare place that also has like a bullpen filled with women. Yeah. 
And it's just like, uh, uh, <laughs> what? Like, like what kind of place in the sticks is this? This is, yeah. I mean, they say the sticks, but these look like sophisticated ladies who uh, know what they're doing. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, I, my guess is that it's kind of one of those suburbs that rich people probably, you know, quote unquote slum in. So you get probably a lot of, you know, ladies of the night. Maybe, um, you maybe. know, probably picked up and forced in there, which is terrible. I mean, did they they maybe they just had a big bust of a speakeasy earlier or something? I like mean, that. probably. And who knows? Maybe the big city ran out of room in their jail. But it's it's a terrible commentary on the legal system. But I again, I don't know how conscious that is on the part of the filmmakers. Yeah, they they do not treat. Joe Scarcy well, and they basically beat out a false name out of him because you see him kind of cowering in a corner while two shadows loom over him at one point. Which is awful. Like, yes, which is also terrible. I mean, again, it's Joe Scarzi, so like personally, we don't have a lot of sympathy. It's uh, it kind of reminds me of something I was discussing with uh, Cassandra, my sister, your wife, um, mm-hmm. about how like you know, true crime. We're kind of you know. We're ghouls who like true crime, but there is a tendency, depending on what narrative you're looking at, to view the cops as, you know, very, as, you know, the heroes of the stories. And, you know, I was watching the interrogation of Chris Watts, the creep who murdered his wife and two daughters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their interrogation system works great on him. They grill him. They do all sorts of psychological manipulation on him that works, that gets a confession they need. And we applaud that because it's Chris Watts. But right. if you imagine those tactics used on, like, a minority kid who either was found with drugs or drugs was planted on him, imagining those same tactics used on, like, a kid like that, it's terrifying. Yeah, I mean, so yeah. even though this is like, you know, in this movie, it's like Joe Scarzi, this this real little twerp of a guy who we don't like. It's like he still doesn't deserve that. Well, and they don't even get accurate information out of him. No, I mean, so it doesn't work even. And I mean, and I wouldn't make it OK if it did work. But it's just like, what is this for? Yeah, I, I kind of thought that was an interesting an interesting thing, uh, interesting insight, really, in that, you know, if you if you threaten somebody with violence or torture them, they'll tell you whatever they think you want them you want them to say. And so he just came up with a name. And I mean, that's how we get so many false confessions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it, it's sobering. It is hard in this day and age to really separate from that, because I feel like, you know, Back in the day, whatever that really means, people could watch that and just be like, ooh, wow, that was an impactful scene. Like, that, like, oh, did you see all the lighting? That was really cool how they, like, beat that out of him. But now, in this day and age, it's like, it's hard to just take that without without getting chills. Yeah, exactly. That this yeah. is just a thing, of her, like, a regular procedure that was done. It's like Joe Scarzi only hit that woman. Because he was being chased by a cop for not doing anything illegal. Yeah, yeah, that's one way to think about it. I mean, again, jerk move, kicking her out of the, the car in the middle of nowhere, but not technically illegal. Yeah, it's just a very messed up thing. And it's hard. Again, it's very ambiguous to know what I think this is a Howard Hughes movie. Um, and 
so I don't know what his take was on that. I don't know. The director was Louis Lewis Milestone. Uh, I we just don't know what their take on that kind of thing is, or if they're just like this is what happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, and uh, so the journalists are of course still buzzing around, and suddenly there's this new fresh faced reporter. Yes, fresh out of college. Fresh and, out of college, works for uh, at the Omaha know- Bee. Yeah. Or, he, he, you know, did a stint with the Omaha Bee, and he's also clearly fresh out of college. And you know this because he's actually wearing a frat coat, which I missed at the first time he watched That's it. That's funny. Yeah. So he is just. He's in. I, I looked it up. He's in Beta Theta, theta, theta excuse me, Beta Theta Pi. <laughs> And I look them up and their slogan is men of principle. Oh, which which makes which fits the character perfectly. Dave Ames, cub reporter. That's his name, played by John Darrow. And he's adorable. Yeah, he he is just adorbs. He's very earnest. Um, he clearly doesn't know how things work around here. He is probably like the one truly morally upright character in the movie. Yeah, I'm. Um, Oh, with the exception of Helen. Well, Helen, you know, she's hands down the best character as in the most lovable, but she's obviously, you know, her top priority is kind of, you know, Helen. Um, whereas, uh, you know, so I feel like she's got, she obviously does the right thing, but she's, you know, you know, gonna whine about it, kind of. You know, she's she's yeah. Well, I mean, a little bit, but at the same time, even like the gold digging, she refuses getting married to him because it's almost like when I, push I, comes to shove, she'll do the right thing. Yeah, yeah, and also she's doing it to annoy Nick Scarcy. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> which is you know, which is a very pure motive, <laughs> I think, in this world. But cub reporter takes to uh, lovely Helen right away, and it's and you know, watching it again. When you watch it the first time, it's like she he has this puppy dog crush on her and she's kind of taken by this wide eyed innocent. And I think that's partly true. But I also think it's showing that he's, you know, for all the fact that he's he's young, he's fresh faced, he's a bit naive. He's not dumb. I think he sees like this lady knows some stuff. Yeah, he, we, we people are dismissing her because they think she's some dumb floozy. Mm-hmm, but no, mm-hmm. she's smart. She knows what's going on. She because I can't quite remember how it's figured out that uh, this kid is actually Joe Scarzi that they have. She she just says, yes. Yeah, that's right. So she just tells um, David Ames, cub reporter. Uh, and she tells him because he's a decent guy. And I think again, yeah. that's commentary. It's like. The journal, the reporters can use all the clever tactics they want and get what they need out of Scarzi and McQuig. Mm-hmm. And uh, the cops can use their dirty tactics. Nick Scarzi can use his dirty tactics. But what appeals to the character of Helen is this guy treating her right and just asking her, like, hey, what's going on? Yeah, he's like the only one who doesn't engage in male posturing. Yeah, yeah. But he he's just He's just normal. He's like, just a normal guy. He who, doesn't do any kind of, like, he doesn't try to schmooze her or like manipulate her in any way. He's just like it again. It's kind of like, oh, he's so naive. He doesn't know how to play the game. This is like he just doesn't have a game. So he just asks so he like, just like asks. a normal freaking person. And for a guy who doesn't have game, he gets more answers than anybody else does. 
Yeah, exactly. And later he he visits her in in the uh, police lady's jail and says like, hey, I got you a package of, of stuff that you might need. And it's like practical stuff. So, I mean, he's getting information out of her. And but I don't even think that it's a ploy. It's just that he's a decent human being and says like, hey, you might need a toothbrush and a brush. And- yeah, it's not like he's saying, and if you don't give me what I want, I'll take it all away. He's like, no. here you go. Like he, he even he even gets her a nightgown, which she finds kind of hilarious because yeah, it's like this really dowdy looking uh, nightgown that she kind of throws over her uh, over her chest like a poncho. Yeah, like she's and she's obviously I think tickled pink by this, but more importantly, I think she is genuinely touched. Yeah, I think just like wow, like a, a decent person in the midst of all this. Yeah, and she uh, flirts with them quite a bit and everything like that. But she also kind of says like, hey, that didn't your mom t- tell you not to talk with strange women and things like that? She she keeps the age difference uh, between them. Which is bit. fun, which is and it's something that you had mentioned when we were talking about this earlier is it's so refreshing to see like an older woman mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, this younger guy who, you know, thinks she's pretty cute and is a little awestruck. And, you know, we get a lot of that in movies with the roles reversed of like the kind of fatherly guy taking the wide eyed, yet much younger woman under his wing. And, uh, you know, now the roles are kind of reversed. And uh, but it's not like she doesn't abuse her position as the older, more, you know, world weary lady wrapping this cute young boy around her finger. There's a there's a relationship of mutual respect between them. Yeah, it's a sweet relationship although it's not really a relationship it's no i mean it's not really i mean it obviously flirts with romance Mm -hmm. and um and all of that but mostly it is just two overall in helen's case decent people behaving decently to each other kind of being becoming sort of partners in uh figuring this all out and uh she becomes it's almost like she becomes decent by being around a decent person and and it's kind of interesting because the that's not the cops no that, that she's around it's it's this ordinary reporter who Who's treats her like fresh off omaha b yeah yeah it's just yeah. like who like sees like hey this this you know this lady's being kind of treated crappy yeah and you could actually probably like if you talk to her like the mature person she is you mm-hmm. could probably get some information, some important information. Like, yeah, and, and it's it's so refreshing to see this kind of portrayal of of an older woman and a younger man not portrayed as something like weird or gross or like some sort of contractual no relationship. That's the other thing too. It's not it's not like he's giving her stuff or taking care of her to get information out of her. It's just kind of like kind of a happenstance almost that this is kind of a byproduct of like, Hey, I trust you because you're a kind person. I'm going to tell you a few more things. And, (laughs) and he kind of gets himself involved in the whole crime drama of um, Joe Scarcy getting arrested and everything like that by basically just saying, Oh, Hey, what's this guy's relation to Nick Scarcy? Because she, she uh, kind of blurts out that like, oh, Nick Scarcy is going to have have a lot to say about this. And she just says like, oh, yeah, that's Nick Scarcy's kid brother. 
but you know, stay out of it. She, she tries to kind of warn him. Yeah, she's, but he but yeah. he immediately like turns around and says, "Like, hey, that's Nick Scarcy's brother. <laughs> He's kind of guileless. He's a bit of a ho dunk, and uh, but a smart one. Yeah, like he makes sure he fumbles. I think he could have done that with more finesse, but I mean, it gets on uh, McQuig's radar." And word does spread to Scarzi. And in one of my favorite scenes, you know, a lawyer gets sent to bail out Joe. And Joe kind of, you know, walks past Helen, who's still in her holding cell with all the other ladies of the night. And it's kind of basically like, nan, 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 I'm getting out. And um, so and, uh, Helen is about to like, she takes off the ring he gave her, is about to like throw it at him when like one of the ladies in the cell with her, like kind of grabs her and whispers to her and she smi- Helen smiles and gives that lady the ring who puts it yeah. on. It's just a total F you to, to Joe. And, and also, she, she also says like, yeah, tell your brother that you're engaged now to, yep. to like this random person, to this random person. And it's just, such, it is also kind of just a nice moment between like two ladies who were like, we're in crappy circumstances here. Let's just have fun with this trip together. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty nice. I it's, just a, love, it's, yeah. it's like a, microsecond of a scene but. no but it sticks in your mind and again it's just helen's just great and provost's acting in that scene is great the kind of just expressions she uses and the way she like deliberately turns her back on joe is just priceless yeah it's uh the movie has a lot of those just like these tiny micro scenes or just like little bits that really are just mm, without perfect. dialogue it's the perfect way to like get a look into their world uh, to like what kind of people they are. Yeah. It makes, it makes you smile. It makes you smile. And <laughs> so, and here is where it really kind of, I said this in a jest, but I meant it earlier that kind of starts to, the station kind of starts to remind me of the state room in like Marx brothers movie of like constant flowing action, people coming in and out. Yeah, and it's kind of hard to keep up with really all the action because yeah, there it, is a little bit. Everything happens in the station. The reporters come in, Scarzi's men comes in, the DA comes in, McQuig, and the officers are in and out. You're like, whoa, 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 where are we now? So where are we now? Like, I think help. at this point that they so they've gotten Joe out of jail. You don't see Joe for the rest of the movie. Yeah, he so. just he's gone. I mean, he was always more kind of a prop instead of a character a little bit yeah which is fine <laughs> he doesn't need to be yes but nick is angry so he's already gotten his brother out but he's also uh cheesed he's Fair, cheesed fa- fairly cheesed about this whole thing so he goes to the police station the officer that did that did kind of you know start off this chase in the sticks of joe scarcy by the way Joe Scarcy just happens to be driving along in uh, McQuig's obscure precinct now. You know, a little bit of plot convenience playhouse yeah, there. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> but, but anyways, it's fine. This uh, officer says like, oh, he's being told that he needs to, to stay in the in the station just because it's, it's dangerous for him. Him being the person who arrested Joe Scarcy. And. He says, oh, I'll, I'll be yellow. Uh, everyone's going to think, you know, less of me. And it's like, again, male posturing. Yep. And so Nick Scarcy comes in. He's looking for McQuig. This officer says hey, he's he's being, you know, kept in the station. Uh, it's like, no, he's not around. You have to go talk to the sergeant or something like that. 
and uh, Nick Scarcy asks him, like, hey, are you the guy who brought in the Joe Scarcy kid? And this and, o- yeah, yeah. this officer is like, yeah, I am. And I don't like crooks. And that's why I stopped him. And he's bad. And all and the rhetoric, all, all the pop male posturing rhetoric, because this yeah. had come because Nick comes in right after this guy is told to stay put in the office. And he, so he is just you know, itching to like prove that he's no coward. And Scarzi gives him the perfect opportunity to like say, yes, I am. I am the officer who brought that guy in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Scarzi just shoots him in the back as soon as his back is turned. Yeah, and he freaking dies. It's like, yeah, it, it, it's a shock. Yeah, I just wasn't expecting that kind of overt like action taken like at that moment. Yeah, yeah. And he punches David Ames, cub reporter in the face who saw the whole thing as he goes out. So he's trying to make his escape. He shoots the police officer and then punches this kid who happened to just be there. Then he he rides off. He gets apprehended fairly quickly, I guess. They don't have the gun, but they have this witness in cub reporter and cub reporter. Of course, him being the upright standing, uh, citizen that he is uh you know he is in beta theta pi man of principle <laughs> he's like yeah sure i'll testify i mean he's kind of naive and doesn't understand like the danger of doing that and helen hayes tries to warn him like hey 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 like like this is dangerous you don't know what's, what's- you shouldn't testify yeah and, and, you know, that he gets his own very because, I mean, no man back then was totally immune to male posturing. Even a guy like this, who's like, hey, don't stick up for me. I'm going to stick by my principles. She's like, oh, don't be dumb like the rest of them. <laughs> but at the same time, I don't even know if that counts as male posturing because he does treat her like a person. Yeah. It's not like, hey, don't stick up for me. You're a woman. It's more like, hey, I'm my own person. I'm not like just some kid. True, true. Because, yeah, I mean, I think it's but there's still a bit of pride, I think, mixed into that of, you know, the the reporters have given him a hard time for being so young and so, you know, gormless. But so I think he's like, no. So I think it's, you know, kind of like a point from like, no, people need to stop trying to like boss me around Mm -hmm. and, and tell me to do the deliberately wrong thing when I know what the right thing is. Right. So they take in Nick Scarcy. Scarcy's lawyer shows up, says, again, with another envelope that already has what's probably a pre-written, hey, get this guy out of jail. And so then we start to see the gray area, very dark gray area in, in McQuig's character. Yeah, McQuig just takes that and tears it up. And he says, like, hey, you can't do that. That's against the law. And he's like, I'm sick of the law. And it's like, that's just what we want to hear. Out yeah, it's like out of a police chief. Uh, no, no, you've already like beaten up like a person in jail. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, these aren't great people, but they have rights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it kind of gets dangerous. And also he's ruining his case and could like get oh, yeah. the case thrown out of court. Oh, so. absolutely. And it's just, again, the not thinking things through. And that's why, you know. I think Helen has such a contempt for all of that, basically. Oh, yeah. It's just like none of you think things through. Your pride is wounded and you just fly off the handle like a little kid. Oh, yeah. Eventually they call in who they refer to as the old man. And I'm not quite sure if this person is a judge or a D.A. I think he's a D.A. Okay, okay. So the D.A. is called in. D.A. says like, hey, you got to let this person go. 
And the DA is also up for re-election on Tuesday. Oh. So at first he tries to get Scarcy to like say like, hey, just take the rap for it until Tuesday. And then once I'm re-elected, um, I won't have to worry about like the papers coming out saying that I got you out. And uh, and Scarcy will have none of it. He's just too proud to stay a moment in jail because of this. And he starts to panic because he again shoots himself in the foot in the most ridiculously childish way that in a way kind of makes you go, wait a minute, movie, because Helen really traps him like a child Mm -hmm. by uh, because, you know, what they're pinning on him for is shooting this officer. And, you know, he's saying, oh, no, no, that must have been my driver. And yeah, and so she badgers him in front of McQuig, in front of the D.A. Like, uh, oh, you think you're so big, you'd shoot a policeman for no reason. And so he like steps back at her. Oh, I had plenty of reason. He was going to like, you know, uh, blah, 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 blah. She's like, see, he he just admitted it. And so that's how they're able to really get that charge on him. And it's Mm -hmm. just like, that's the most ridiculous way (laughs) to like do that. It's like, how did this guy become like head of a criminal empire? If he's so easily duped, but it's like, and it's also just the power of Helen. She is the MVP. She's the one who's like knows how to play these. Yeah, she's really the each she's other. really the one who like secures the case for them. Yeah, um, it's not. Yeah, and yeah. again, it's like she she knows Scarcy. She knows what kind of person he is, and she knows she knows how to manipulate him. You're absolutely right. And after he's put his foot in it. Again, that becomes more difficult for the DA to then mm-hmm. say, hey, you need to let this person go because you, you've got nothing on him. He has the McQuig has the evidence from uh, the witness, cub reporter. And he's also got this confession now that um, Scarcy really tricked it out of him. Yeah, it really got tricked out of him. So. The DA's not sure what to do now. And McQuig leaves the room for some reason. I think it's because they found the gun. They found the gun. Yeah, there's okay, so there's a gun on the table. Mm-hmm. And for a hot second, I feel like McQuig is almost setting him up. Mm. But I don't know if that's actually how it plays out. I don't think I don't think that he is. I think they just happen to leave evidence out on a table. Yes, because, again, not a sterling portrayal of the police force here. No, not even of McQuig. Like McQuig, I feel like we're supposed to think is basically this Elliot Ness type character, but he's not even the one to get the confession out of him. No. Yeah, he doesn't really do anything. He's just kind of like posturing. Yeah. Uh, So anyways, the the plan now to help Nick get out of jail on this is the uh, DA's plan. Um, he needs to get him out of jail because, as Nick mentions, he has a dinner party later that night. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just another little character detail that adds nothing to the plot, but adds everything to just the character touch of just how excited someone like Scarzi is to be like, I'm having a dinner party. You've got to get me out of here for murder. <laughs> <laughs> got to make this dinner party. So their their idea, which is, again, pretty childish and not convincing uh they just open the window and then pull down the shade and then hold the shade in place with a book that's right oh my gosh and the idea is just like well you can just jump out the window scarcity doesn't like that idea then again i think it wounds his pride i don't want to like sneak out like that right 
exactly. He wants to be just let out. And um, so they go back and forth. The DA is not letting him, is not going to risk everything coming out to the papers that, you know, he let this criminal out. So he's a bad person and you shouldn't vote for him. So what Scarcy says, like, if you don't get me out of here, then I will go to the papers and I'll turn all of my wards against you. You'll lose the election. And also I'm going to like publish everything, all the corrupt dealings, everything about everyone. And this is just what McQuig wants. Yeah. Yeah. And this is exactly what he wants. And when Scarcy kind of realizes that he's cornered, he tries to take that escape route out the window and it's actually the DA's goon that shoots him in the back yeah. as he tries to escape. And the heavy implication being that he wasn't shooting Scarcy to prevent the escape. And in fact, someone actually asks, I believe it's about this particular murder. It's just like, but why shoot him? It's like, why, why would you need to kill this person for trying to escape? And it's, to me, it's pretty clear that it's because he threatened to expose their oh, yeah. corruption. And this, I think, devastates McQuig because he was he wanted Scarzi alive to mm-hmm. talk about the DA to get rid of that corruption. Yeah. Part of you wants to see McQuig be redeemed because he is supposed to be this heroic figure. And he kind of like feels sorry that this person who was his adversary is now dead. But. I think you're right in that it wasn't that he's a good person. And so like, oh, man, I can't believe this person is dead that I was at odds with. It's it maybe he's just sad because he's not going to be able to take down all of the corruption. I really think that's kind of the underlying thing we're going to kind of come away with with this movie is that everyone at odds, everyone having their own agenda. Nobody really ends up getting what they really want. No, no. Yeah, I think you're. That's pretty much how it ends. Yeah. I mean, Helen is kind of just looks at them as like, oh, you men, I'm out of here. And, uh, you know, says her goodbyes to the cub reporter like, you know, we're not going to have some great romance. I'm heading in a different direction, but you're swell. And I guess, you know, we're just, yeah, kind of left with business as usual. Like he's like. Oh, well, I'm going to, McQuig's like, well, I'm going to have to deal with the coroner. And then there's Mass, because, you know, he's Irish. And then, and then the movie just kind of ends, and it's just sort of like, it's almost refreshing. There's no big it's no big, re- it's no big resolution, really. No, there's no resolution. It's basically like, say la vie. Yeah. And it's, you know, again, in the current climate, it's disquieting. Like, mm-hmm. okay, nothing is resolved, and this is still a problem to this day. True, bootlegging isn't, but, you know, we got the war on drugs, we're getting war on black lives, and it's just different issues, but the same corrupt system. And yeah, yeah, and, and you can you can kind of see Nick Scarcey as representing white-collar crime, because yeah. he, he is given privilege because he is so wealthy, and because he can deliver votes. And yep, deliver votes, has all these connections that... uh I mean, it's kind of a weird parallel to Jeffrey Epstein. It's like Hmm. this wealthy figure with these weird kind of unknowable business connections. Mm -hmm. And the second he's put behind bars, he's dead. 
it's like he, you know, his all his power, all his money didn't do anything for him in the end. Because once they see him as, well, he's not going to get me votes now. It's clear who he is. So we just got to get rid of him. And yeah, so that is the racket. Yeah. Um, The racket. Gang movie that is actually quite a thinker. It is quite a thinker. And, uh, you know, subtitle could be male posturing the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Shall we rate them? Let's rate. Let's rate. Okay. So the way we do this is our rating system is based off of four major categories, acting, writing, cinematography, and then just kind of an overall uh, how well do those three things work together? And then we have some bonus rounds. So more than some bonus points. So, and that's those four categories are costumes and sets boldness, which is kind of nebulous is kind of how, how many risks the movie takes yeah. and how well does that pay off? Uh, longevity being how well does it stand up over time? Um, and then legacy, meaning how does it influence later movies? Yeah. How, how, yeah, exactly. Um, and those are the two that are always kind of difficult to differentiate. Yeah. So let's, yeah, let's get into this. Should we just start at the top with acting? Yeah, let's do acting. I loved all the acting on it. Everyone was really well cast. I'm. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I can't really think of a weak link. I mean. Even down to the reporters. Is yeah, like Skeets Gallagher is just really memorable. He's just got such an ease on camera. You know, Wolheim, Wolheim, Louis Wolheim is just perfect as Nick. He's just really got that charisma, and um, also just I think really portrays well the uh, kind of desperation behind all that, all the posturing. Um, Thomas Meigen. Captain James McQuig. I mean, yeah, he does not stick out in my memory as much as Wolheim does, but he's very cop-like. <laughs> and uh, he, he does capture like this self-righteous, squeaky clean cop stereotype really yeah. well, which kind of contrasts with like how awful he is in ways when yeah. he's like... And he's gross and violent and he has a certain smugness about him. Yeah, he is. I think in a way he's he's different. He has a different negative energy from someone like Scarcey or one of the gangsters so that he is so wrapped up in how morally right he is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that he can't let in any other point of view. He it just becomes so dogged for him that and it's it's kind of scary because, again, he on his watch. Uh, little Joe Scarzi is roughed up because he has convinced himself that this is the right thing to do. Yeah. And it's pretty scary because it's stuff that goes on right now. Uh, Joe Scarzi, easily, easily like a hateable little fop. Yep. Um, Chick, our little, uh, what's it? What's the actor's name? Our uh, Peter Laurie. Paul uh, Rubens. Paul Rubens. Uh, hybrid. Hybrid. Um he does a great job in that he's he's also very smug in a different way. Oh, yeah, Lucian Preval. Yeah, very, very memorable. Lots of just memorable faces that aren't conventionally attractive, which mm-hmm. I appreciate. They're not movie star glamorous, 
but they're real faces and memorable mm-hmm. faces, which mm-hmm. is what this movie needs. The two veteran reporters work really well together and as as individuals. They feel like lived in people, like lived in characters, mm-hmm. um, and it, which is really hard to do in a silent movie where there's not a lot of um, exposition given for them. But yet they're just and I, I wonder if it has a lot to do with the fact this was based on a play. So they had that source material to go to, mm. but it's just very well set up. And uh, of course, Mir- Marie Prevost was just great. Oh, yeah, she's Helen. fantastic. Just very fun. Very, very likable. So I would give it about the highest score, which is we've decided for acting is. Uh, yeah. So the major categories are one through 10. And I guess I, I'm, I'm there with you. Yeah. Um, I can't think of a negative thing to really say about it. I am debating between nine and 10. Me too. Which I feel, again, I have... I have an unfair bias against this movie. I feel like not not that I not against it. I mean, an unfair bias in the negative direction of this movie because it is like a gangster film, which I feel like that's kind of that Oscar thinking is that like, well, this is not highfalutin enough to right. to be. But the acting is fantastic. I'll, I'll go ahead and give it a 10. Yeah, I'll I, give it a 10 I, too. I was thinking is like maybe I want to reserve that for something a little bit more serious. Should but, one of us be writing this down? Yeah, I'm I'm writing. Okay, it down. good, good. Thank you. Well, so I give it a 10, you give it a 10. Perfect. All right. How about the writing? How's the story? Again, I feel like it would have benefited from sound. I think this would have made a really good talkie, early talkie. Yeah. I feel like it it could have had some like there were a lot of title cards. Uh, more title cards, I think, than we got in many, most of the other movies, because mm-hmm. it was a very just plot oriented, action oriented movie. It needed a lot of setup. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that probably could have been a bit smoother, but they did very well with it. It got confusing in certain It points. did get confusing, especially towards the end with all the action and without really any dialogue to keep us up to snuff. So I'd, I guess I'd go more for, I mean, it had some good lines. I mean, a lot of it was. I didn't totally understand because I think it was so topical of the time yeah, with yeah. a lot of the slang. So I guess I would go more towards a, a six for the writing. Above average, but not. But not not a standout. And it had some it had some logistical problems. I think if they had waited like just a year to like make it, they could have made <laughs> like a really good talkie. Yeah. I mean, obviously it was successful as a play because it got made yeah. into a movie. Yeah. But. Uh, hmm. Hmm. Yeah, there are some serious gaps in it, but I don't know, because I feel like the dynamics between like the commentary that I don't know if we're just reading too much into it or the fact that we can read too much into it and the fact that it's left open, I think, speaks well of it. It's like a blessing and a curse in a way, Mm -hmm. because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's cool to have so much open ended. It's nice not to have someone condescend to explain every single thing to us. But at the same time, it becomes unclear what the director, what the what the film stance on any given situation is. I think I'm going to go ahead and give it a seven just just for the, the, the ability for, for commentary. And this is this is unusual. We're giving high marks and I'm actually giving slightly higher so far. Yeah. Uh, cinematography. 
I liked it. I mean, I thought it was yeah. really good. I mean, we had, like you said, the uh, the shot of the of the hats dissolving to uh, reveal the guns underneath. And they, but they don't do that too much, so it becomes no. like a gimmick. Um, so yeah, I think the cinematography was great. I mean, it was the crowd scenes were, were the, really great, and I mean, the car chase scene is is brief. Mm-hmm. but I think really well done. I mean, the whole hitting of the woman was maybe, I mean, it's clear when you watch it that the car doesn't actually hit her and that she like flies back kind of on her own. So, I mean, but you know, that's for then. I mean, it was still very effective. So yeah, I'd give it a high score. I'd give it, I'd give it a nine. A nine. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and give it, I'm going to go ahead and give it another seven. Oh, much okay. We're doing a little seesaw action here. Yeah, and that's the my reasoning behind that is I do think they do a lot of good jobs with the uh, crowd scenes and everything like that. And but there are also some fairly lazy shots. I feel like maybe some of the action uh, where it gets muddled towards the end, yeah, might have been helped by by a. Uh, Maybe some better shots or cinematography. Don't ask me. I'm not a cinematographer or director, so I can't tell you what what those differences should be. Oh, but you know what? Change my score to an eight. You've you've convinced me. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, I, I have a harder time, I think, than some people. In like, I don't pay as much attention to like cinematra like the cinematography. I'm I'm deep into the character analysis, which means I'm like, oh yeah. Let me try to remember the cinematography. But, you know, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of there is just a lot of confusion and mayhem in the last and those scenes. those kind of stage shots. Yeah, it is. Aren't. It is stagey. It is stagey. Uh, but that's kind of like the second half, too. I feel like the first half is really strong. Yeah, it really keeps it at a good clip going from location to location. And uh, I mean, and it still manages to do a lot of stuff within the confines of the police station. Uh, the the interrogation scene with the two big shadows. And, yeah, it uh, has some really good points. Yeah, but I think I think seven and eight. I think those are those are fair. That's fair. It's fine. It's fine. It's just fine. It'll pass. Um, overall, how well do these three things work together? I'm going to go ahead and say pretty well. Pretty well. I mean... <laughs> Nothing really stuck out as bad. Nothing stuck out as bad. Nothing really stuck out as really great. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's enjoyable, but I don't think it probably like changed anyone's viewpoint or life or anything. It was just a fun movie. Yeah. Which is fine. You know, why shouldn't it be? That's the thing about this movie is that I, again, I keep, I don't know if it's a bias about it being like such a popular Mm -hmm. uh, genre, but. It just thinking back to this summary and and reviewing that we've done, we haven't really had too much bad to to say about it, which is which is different from some of the movies that I also liked that we've reviewed. Yeah, that had these. I mean, I think that, you know, it's. It's good for a movie to have something that I think you can really focus on concretely like this didn't work. Mm -hmm. Um, This movie, it just didn't really inspire that kind of emotional response. Yeah, it's not it's it's not exactly like Oscar-y. It's like those great comedies that don't get nominated for the yeah. for the Academy Award because you know, they're not deep, quote unquote deep enough. 
Yeah. Like this movie is not deep on the same level as say Sunrise, but you know what? It's definitely not pretentious. And I think you could argue that Sunrise is. So <laughs> I'd say, okay. So, I mean, it's kind of just skirting above average again. I think I'm going to go with a, with a, I'll go with a seven. Seven. I think we're going to verse again. I'm going to go ahead with an eight. Okay. I'm going to try. And that might be me just trying to not have a bias against it being such a pop genre, but it functions. I mean, it does what it sets out to do. And again, it's refreshing. It's refreshing that it's not trying to be bigger than it is. Yeah. It's no like a tale of two humans or whatever Sunrise's subtitle was. Like it's like, like, here's some cool gangster movies. Like here's some cool gangster movies. I mean, there's definite social commentary yeah there's some substance to it too There's substance to it but it doesn't hit you over the head with a mallet which i do appreciate yeah so is my head okay so now we're on to bonus round oh yeah i got i got that sound now so that will be in there because i'm just unable to do that actual kind of sound (laughs) i've just turned it you're you're not a sound effect actor speaking of pretentious i just go beethoven okay costumes and sets i mean oh i really loved the sets i mean especially i mean yeah they're stagey but like especially in the party scene yeah the party scene has some good sets the the little bootlegging operation was a fantastic set oh yeah that was just what i'll say it this way when they decided to make a set, they made a good set. They made a good set. Yeah. The police station was not a good set, but it also just wasn't. I feel like they didn't attempt it that much. No, no. It was they like, were, here's a room with some doors. I mean, it was a place for action. Like it wasn't yeah. meant to be like a standout piece. And I mean, I'd say the same for the costumes. I mean, Helen had some cool, you know, snazzy little uh, flapper dresses. And uh, I think, you know, the fact that Nick is very careful to be well-dressed is an important part of his character. Yeah. There's some fantastic suits. Yeah. Um, um, but again, I think we're also talking about something of the time. So the costuming there was like, get me a nice looking suit. And that's just like where they, I don't know. They I mean, went I and got something off the rack. I think I might have to do lucky number seven again. Lucky number seven. Yeah. Well, actually, we're doing this one through five. Oh, one how, through five. Never you mind. How, I how always ma- forget that. Um, it's okay. I, I do too. Let's how see. Many, how many bonus points do you feel like the costumes deserve? <sighs> costumes and sets. Two. I mean, not too many. Two? Yeah. I'm going to go ahead with three just for like the crowd scene sets. Yeah. I felt were like really well done. Um. So the next bonus round, I can't even read that. It's longevity. Uh, no, boldness. Oh, boldness. Skipped right over that. Okay, boldness. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it was banned in Chicago. Really? Which I think is bold because of its, you know, again, I don't Portrayal think... Portrayal of actual Chicago. Of actual <laughs> Chicago. And I think, you know, I think it was pretty darn bold to uh, portray how deep in the pockets the politicians, the police department were. Uh, at that and, time, and the criminals into the criminals. So yeah, I'd say it's a pretty bold movie overall. And also I think the character of Helen is so refreshing. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not a good girl. She's not a bad girl. She's a human character who gets stuff done. It's a cops and robbers. It's dressed up like a cops and robbers movie, but it takes that kind of 
trope and makes it it makes you think about it. It makes you question it. Makes you question it. Like what and I think characters like Helen and Dave kind of serve to anchor us like as like this is pretty dumb. Yeah, this is wrong. This whole system, everyone here, the politicians, the criminals, the police force are screwing every everyone over. Yeah, and it's violent too. That's the other thing too. It's is very violent. You have you have at that very beginning, it's like, this is McQuig, here's his gun holster, and now let's transition directly to mobsters holding guns. So I think it's definitely a commentary on prohibition, which this was during this was released yeah, in, I in, mean, during I think, prohibition. You know, we've been talking about it a lot in like big picture, like look at the how you know the pol- reverberations today with the police, but I think it is very much a commentary on prohibition. And how prohibition, like this kind of dumb law, has inspired a lot of people to act dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to, so for the time, it's really super bold. I'm going to give it a five. Five? I'm going to, I'm going to give it the full fireworks. I'm going to give it four. Okay. But I, I understand five. Yeah. 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 Reaching and for the stars here. Yeah. They're going to come back a star. They're going to come back a star. after. Oh, yeah. Especially since. The bad guy dies in the end, but you don't feel super great about it. No, because it's it, actually a no. bad thing that he's died because that means he can't squeal. He can't squeal. It's like <laughs> we don't know how many pedophiles are in places of power right now because Epstein died and can't tell us about them. It's like there That's is there's point. no happy ending. The monster is dead, but so many more monsters are going to walk free because of that. Yeah, it's it's a it's a challenger. It is. It's very challenging. Okay, so the next, now the next I think bonus round is longevity. Longevity. And again, my eternal like longevity and legacy. How does it? But for longevity, I think. How, how well does it stand up? I mean, I think modern audiences would really like the first part. Because mm-hmm. we get all like the sort of jazz age scenes of the party, of the shoot 'em ups, of the prohibition. It's, I think you know the, the the action does kind of come to a sort of chaotic halt towards the end. I could see people being mm-hmm. kind of just a little frustrated, losing the plot, losing who's who. Um, yeah, I think it holds up really well though, because I mean the. Definitely the first half is shot in a very modern way. Yeah. And there's a lot of modern, there are a lot of modern topics that it covers. I, I think it does really well in longevity in that I think it holds up. I think it holds up really well. I think it's, yeah. I mean, I agree. I think it's, you know, it's not as well remembered as I, but I think it's, you know, set the stage for a lot of the Jimmy Cagney kind of movies that came. Mm-hmm. In the 30s. Mm-hmm. So. I guess I will give it. Can I do a 3.5? If you really want to. Let's do it. Let's do a three and a half. 3.5 bonus points. Oh, I can see a modern audience really watching this. I can go ahead and give it a four. I was toying with the idea of giving it a five, but I think. I think it. Uh, you're right. The second half is a little bit too stagey, and also, it it also is a little bit 
too ingrained with uh with the time and some of the some of the references and things like that and the uh there's some light moments of prejudice uh, or just like presumption about the cops being irish and everything like that which is kind of weird it's not like a positive or negative stereotype it's just there it's to be just there. there yeah um and, I and also they, yeah. oh and I, for, I forget also like there are some bits that you can you have to you have to be someone who studies film or something like that to really notice it but i i do think that there's some characters that are coded as gay and they're the villains yeah the criminals like we talked about That's at true. length and i've forgotten about um but i still think it it holds up decently well yeah and legacy legacy being the impact that it has on later movies. And I think, I don't think it was like the first gangster movie. I don't think it was like, I don't know if it like completely wrote the template of what we saw as a very popular genre throughout the thirties and Mm forties. But obviously, you know, it was one of the first films nominated for best picture. So I assume it probably did influence some of the big, movies we talk about the 30s like with jimmy cagney like uh like public enemy uh white heat and uh little caesar so i mean i think for legacy i would go probably because of that an entire point higher than i gave before i think i'm 4.5 because i think it has i mean again i think it wasn't the only movie doing that at that time but it was one of the first and so I think it did set the stage for that kind of uh, cops and robbers movie we saw a lot in the coming decade. Yeah, I think it probably didn't directly impact a lot of the later movies, but it kind of like leapfrog. Mm-hmm. It's it's a legacy because it. I think you're right. It probably influenced the 30s movies, which then influenced. It influenced the probably better known and more popular 30s movies. And then that influenced the later ones and the later ones and the later ones. Yeah, you could kind of see how that plays out. And I think, again, we're seeing like a real life legacy of we were this was the kind of like corruption was being pointed out then that we're still seeing today. And has created an environment where people are fighting for their lives in the streets right now because of that corruption. Mm -hmm. So... And I think, you know, that's an unintentional legacy because, again, this was about prohibition, but really yeah. prohibition is just, you know, a horse of a different color. Yeah, it's it's kind of sad. Well, I mean, not kind of. It is sad that part of this legacy and longevity is partly because there's a lot of the same issues with yeah. police corruption and and police not following the rules. Yep. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and give it a four. For legacy. Okay. Just to have an even number. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know my point fives are going to screw up the math here, but you know. But they balance each other out, so there that's we fine. Go. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I'm looking forward to tallying this one up because I think, I think we might have a high score. Ooh. Yeah, I think we absolutely have a new high score. Whoa, that's crazy. What is it? 93. Whoo, whoo, whoo. Let me double check wow, my math there. I did not expect there. that. Yeah. 
93. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's yeah. Cause 84, 80% for wings, the actual winner, 74.5 for sunrise, which was the second winner. And then this one we've, uh, given a movie award to basically so far. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not all about points, you know, that's true. Um, Let's see. So the big question is, does this deserve a Notsker or movie award podcast movie award? I just don't. When it comes to Wings and Sunrise, you get emotional about both movies Mm -hmm. in good ways and bad ways. Whereas this movie you don't really. You can admire it. You can have fun with it. But mm-hmm. and again, I feel like we're getting into that weird territory where like what only deep movies that are deliberately deep get the Notsker, but like a really well made movie that just says what it says without pandering to our emotions doesn't. So but at the same time, there is I have just do not feel as emotionally invested in this movie as yeah. I did in the other two. There's. The thing is, is that like there are parts about Wings and uh, Sunrise both. Um, and I don't think we gave it to Sunrise, did we? I don't think so. I can't. I, I think we I think we gave it the award that it actually won, which is like best artistic. Picture. Best artistic picture. Because <laughs> but both of those artsy. both of those were kind of like. Even though it had they had like their weak points, it was. But clearly th- there is some kind of masterpiece. Yeah. About this. The, like, that was innovative, that really stood out, that gets you talking. And I wasn't, I wasn't awestruck by this movie, no. but I was delighted by this movie. I was delighted by this movie. You get, you go away with a good, fun feeling. I mean, I did have to rewatch it because I'd forgotten a lot about it. Mm-hmm, it did mm-hmm, not same. stick in my mind as much as the other two movies. So I don't think I can give it the Notsker. I don't yeah. know. We uh we well, we both have to agree, and uh so if if one of us doesn't want to give it, then it doesn't get it. But that said, I am gonna go ahead and say that I wouldn't have given it either. Um, which is a tough call. It, it is it, a it, tough call. I recommend this movie wholeheartedly. Right, right. I like this movie quite a bit, but I don't, you know head over heels love it i don't head over heels hate parts of it or anything it's not something that i would go to like some someone in like (laughs) film school right now or something like that and say like you have to study this movie no i say like oh you definitely give this movie a watch i think you'll have fun yeah yeah but i don't i don't i mean i think there could be a lot written about it i mean i've mentioned some heavy subjects that it reminds me of like jeffrey epstein and the current protests mm-hmm. um but i again i don't know if that's inherent in the movie as it is just the fact that it was about the police right, force right. about corruption it's of course going to remind us in this day and age of what we're dealing with now um but it's yeah i think it's execution and everything it's <laughs> As like what Tolkien said about the Lord of the Rings, it's it's not allegory, it's applicable. Yes. And I think this is applicable to the time that it was made in and also applicable to our own time, sadly enough. I do feel like 
it would definitely win kind of the opposite side of the uh, spectrum from Sunrise. If like yeah. Sunrise wins an award for best like art film, then the racket would win the best prize for best lowbrow. Yeah. I mean, film. not that it's like that lowbrow. It's just it. I don't know. I mean, even the titles, you know, Sunrise, A Tale of Two Humans versus The Racket. Just very yeah. punchy, very slangy, very slangy, very of its time. Yeah. And so opposite ends of the spectrum. And honestly, you know, I love I like a lot about Sunrise. I think it, you know, it sticks in my mind more than this film. Mm-hmm. But it is in a lot of ways kind of insufferable. <laughs> and you know what? The racket is it. The racket is what it is straightforward. No pretensions. It it's executed what it set out to do. And I applaud it. I applaud this movie. I just yeah. don't. I don't think it deserves the not skirt because it just, it doesn't hit me emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can see the argument for, for both sides. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely. So intriguing little flick listener. If you disagree, call up our phone line right now and we'll uh, hear your case. One and a one 800 rat boy. <laughs> it did include rat boy. It did include rat boy. So and can Paul, we give it- and the earliest known portrayal of Paul Rubens. That's true. Can we give it a uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse uh, Award of Excellence? The Pee Wee's Playhouse Peabody Award. <laughs> <laughs> On that, I think we've done our due diligence. I think we have. We're going to hopefully set up some some avenues like Twitter or Facebook for you guys to like share some responses to this, especially now that we've done a few of these. I think it's valuable if any of you guys want to go out and watch these movies um i think i think they're definitely all so far all of them so far have been worth going out and watching yeah uh and i personally would love to hear what other people think about these and and how you guys are enjoying the podcast and how how uh i really like to hear how wrong we are yell at us about how wrong we are yes just rake us over the coals do it and of course, if you've enjoyed this, share it with your friends, uh, especially if they're movie fans. And uh, I think I think that's it for now for Come that's Back a Star. And now our typical sign off, slip, slap, slap, de do. Uh, look out for you. All right. Stay safe out there.